Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 48 Hours ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Need more true crime in your life? An Audible membership can solve that. Audible is the ultimate destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, you could choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Don't miss The Serial Killer's Apprentice by Katherine Ramsland and Tracy Allman. It follows the true story of how Houston's deadliest murder turned a kid into a killer in training. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 48 hours or text 48 hours to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 48 hours or text 48 hours to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 48 hours. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Get postmortem ad-free when you subscribe to 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Start your uninterrupted listening today for just $2.99 a month. I'm Anne-Marie Green, and welcome to Postmortem. And whether you're new to 48 Hours or a longtime fan, we're answering your biggest questions from our episode, The Death of an Officer's Wife. This is a special one to me because I was the correspondent on this case. And I'm joined now by producer Judy Ryback, who reported and produced on this episode. So welcome, Judy. Thank you. It is really good to be here for my first ever podcast. (laughs) So before we get to our postmortem, let's listen to an overview of this week's episode. It was February 3rd, 2020, when Seth Perrault, then a police officer for the city of Eatonton, Georgia, reported his 44-year-old wife, Amanda, had shot and killed herself. Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills was in charge of the investigation. He said that they were in bed and they were arguing, and then all of a sudden, She just produced the gun out of thin air and executed herself. But Sills says from the start, he wasn't buying Perrault's story. For one thing, the crime scene didn't look like a suicide to the sheriff. Her body is flat on her back, her legs are almost together, and her arms are tucked against her side with her hands cut. This wasn't right. Also of concern to Sills was the way this Smith & Wesson 380, which belonged to Seth Perrault, was found lying next to Amanda's body with its magazine ejected. The magazine, it was near her right side. And the pistol itself was way down here below her left foot. There's something not adding up. 
District Attorney Wright Barksdale points to the fact that just six days before Amanda Perold's death, she had called 911 and had her husband arrested on charges of simple battery and family violence. The next day, he made bond. I think he hid behind a badge and wore a mask every day. Nice house, law enforcement. But behind that door to that house, he was pretty abusive. Based in part on the crime scene and allegations of abuse, Barksdale charged 44-year-old Parolt with murder. But seven months later, the medical examiner in the case issued her report, ruling Amanda Parolt's death a suicide. When you're working with Judy, you get every transcript. You get any piece of evidence that, you know, the investigators are willing to give. Every phone call you've had with everyone we're about to interview. You're really detailed. And so when you said to me, you were struggling with this hour, why did you find putting this together so challenging? I think for me, honestly, it's not the case itself because mm-hmm. for me, the evidence is so clear. Like it just speaks so loudly. And it's, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. For me, it was because it was a domestic violence case. I yeah. think that's what was really bothering me, you know, like and, and the notion that um, that Amanda was trying to get out and didn't get out in time. Yeah. You know, and I know and we sort of talked about this, that, yes, it was a toxic relationship. Yes. Neither of these people were perfect. Um, but you were really cognizant of putting together the hour in a way that we would not be blaming Amanda for what happened to her. Yeah, well, that's what we do at 48 Hours. We're very, very sensitive to victims because mm-hmm. nobody deserves to be murdered, you mm-hmm. know, no matter who you are or what you've done, you know, whatever. Um, we don't blame the victim at all. Yeah. And, and we're really, um, you know, we, we, we're fair and balanced because we go bend over backwards to be always fair and balanced. But we, but we honor the victims and their families. Yeah. Um, I know for me, this was sort of classic red flags when it comes to a domestic violence situation, very toxic relationship, alienation. Um, And, you know, increasingly she had become dependent on Seth. But I really do feel like there was some manipulation. Oh, yeah. I feel like there was a lot of manipulation um, from the start. And remember, she was always dependent on him, right, from the very start. He had her move in with him and reportedly wouldn't let her get a job. Yeah, so um, she was completely dependent on him. Yeah. The idea of being married to a police officer, like everything on the surface of this looked so perfect. You have a young family, police officer, a beautiful house, a boat in the driveway. I mean, it was all an illusion of this kind of perfect suburbia living. You know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. So let's dig in to the case. And the key question when it comes to this case is who pulled the trigger, right? Was it a suicide was it a murder? And I'm going to throw something else in, too. Was it an accidental suicide? Hmm. Um, because that's right. something that Seth's lawyers sort of raised, that maybe she had shot herself by accident right. because, you know, she was inebriated. They had been drinking. A lot. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the medical examiner's ruling? Because that was the moment, right, that I heard gasps when I was sitting and watching The Hour where people were like, oh! How did the medical examiner rule this a suicide when everything about the case 
seems so odd. Right. Not only how, but the timing of it, right? Like they were still in the middle of investigating the case. And suddenly this report comes out and everybody was stunned. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody was stunned. Often when you have a gunshot directly to the temple, Emmys tend to rule suicide. Mm. Because who else is going to get that close to you? And, you know, you have to kind of stand still to to be shot this way, right? Mm -hmm. So I think their theory is it's not a... It's not a struggle. There's no struggle. There is a gunshot right to the temple. And um, I can't believe she looked at the crime scene photos and saw a suicide. I don't don't see how. And she didn't budge on the stand. And you've done a lot of 48 hours. So one of the things that you were telling me was that, you know, often medical examiners do disagree with investigators, but not like this. It's usually the other way around. An investigator might say, I think it's a suicide. And the medical examiner says, no, you should take a second look. So this was a little odd. Very odd to me. The other thing that shocked people, too, was the same thing that shocked the sheriff. The position of Amanda's body. I don't know about you when you talk to some of your friends, but I know my friends, that was the other thing that they kept on talking about, where her hands were positioned, where the gun was positioned, the way the gun broke apart. Like, how does she end up like that, you know, like straight out like a mummy with her hands cupped by her side? In fact, let's play a little of what Sheriff Sills has to say. The magazine, it was near her right side, and the pistol itself was way down here below her left foot. And there was a bullet in the gun. So remember, he explained to us that um, you have to, if the magazine falls out, how is there a bullet? The the magazine has to eject another bullet into the gun and then it falls out? Right. It doesn't happen that way. Right. The gun was not tested for fingerprints. Right. And also not tested for the gunpowder residue, right? Which, you know, you go, what are you talking about? The gunpowder residue would let you know if she committed suicide because it'd be all over it her It would hands. be all over her But there's hands. a big but with that. Right, right. I've been told by a lot of DAs and, and detectives at this point, they don't really rely on it because, again, because when you shoot off a gun, yeah. GSR gunshot residue goes all over the place, and uh, and and yeah. So it might not have proven anything whether she ha- was holding the gun or not. The gun was so close to her that, and anyone else, right, would have gotten right. What is interesting is that they found a you know a bit of it on his hand, right? Right. And but it was his gun. But it was his gun, and he was a cop, and he had been off duty for a while, yeah. right? And he could have showered, and there could have been just a little bit left. Yeah. Oh, the other thing is, you know, there's no blood. So how do you shoot yourself and not get blood on your hand mm-hmm. and the sleeve of your shirt? It just doesn't, it make, doesn't sense. make sense. So, yeah, when Sheriff Sills sort of acts this out, it seems impossible. And certainly the way Amanda's body was, um, you know, you wouldn't sort of shoot yourself and then wind up in that position. But on the flip side, what Sheriff Sills was suggesting was that Seth somehow got behind her, was able to crouch down behind her. I mean, what he's suggesting as the alternative reality, I guess, is also not very easy to do. No, it's not real easy to wrap your brain around. There was no room for him to crouch down. I mean, I just don't really get it. We could play homicide detective for hours. Um, 
So like I said, Judy gives you everything that they've acquired about a case. And one of the things that I listened to was the tapes of Seth's interrogation by Sheriff Sills. Okay, so that's where he's sort of explaining why her body was in this strange position. Um, And he initially says, I didn't touch her, I didn't touch her, I didn't touch her. And it felt a lot to me. It felt like someone who was lying. It felt like someone who was just trying to keep the conversational ball in the air, but not actually answering any of the questions. I want to play a little bit. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I probably did touch her. I was probably hugging the out of her. And I was probably like, I'm so, like, honey, what the hell's going on? Then he says, well, maybe I hugged her. And it was a lot of that, wasn't it, Judy, in the conversation? A lot of kind of jumping around, being unclear, deflecting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kept wanting to talk about what a great police officer he was and how Amanda thought he was such a great police officer and how important it was to her and to him. And yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a good officer. I'm a good police officer. I'm a good police officer. I'm a good officer. It really sounds a little bit like he's trying to manipulate the sheriff. And then he uses the word, my wife executed herself. He said that they were in bed and they were arguing. And then all of a sudden, she just produced the gun out of thin air and executed herself. I just sat there and watched my wife execute herself. In all my years of questioning anybody for suicide, I have never heard anybody use the term executed. During the interview with Sheriff Sills, that was a word that jumped out at him. And he is like, I've never heard anyone speak like that. Yeah, I've never heard that either. In my 13 years at uh, 48 Hours, I have never heard anyone use the word execute. You know, people should know that um, you really worked hard to get somebody to speak on Seth's behalf. Yes. It was and very difficult. Yeah. You, sp- you spent a lot of time talking to his mother. And his mother really felt like the sheriff had it out for Seth. Yeah. Yeah. The defense seemed to be that um, Seth was a good guy and that, um, that he was uh, the victim of uh, some sort of conspiracy. You know, the sheriff was out to get the local police chief mm-hmm. and— um, and this, and Seth got caught in the middle of some battle between the sheriff and the local police chief, right. and he was sort of like roadkill, you know. Right. Yeah. Now, Sheriff Sills is sort of like a fixture yeah. in Putnam County. Um, he's been sheriff for a really, for a really long time. But this sort of line there is that he grew up in the courthouse because he had actually been adopted by the district attorney right. of the county. So he had always been around law, law enforcement, the courthouse, and then eventually grew up to become sheriff. That's part of the reason why she felt that, you know, the tentacles of Sheriff Sills could be long and influential in the county. Yeah. I mean, he does have long, influential Mm -hmm. tentacles in the county, you know, but has he used them for evil? I mean, there's no evidence of that, right? So, and and there was no evidence that that he was going to cross the thin blue line you know, yep. um, or that he wasn't, you know, I should say, that that 
he was going after a police officer, you know, and and he in in his words, he felt like that put more pressure on him, right? Because it was one of their own and they did have to be super careful and make sure that they got it right mm-hmm. because he was a police officer. Mm-hmm. So I feel like almost every time that I spoke to you sort of leading up to our shoots, you would say I just got off the phone with Seth's mom. <laughs> you really did spend a lot of time talking to her. You had lunch with her on your birthday. Yeah, the life of a 48 hours producer. Yeah. yeah. We couldn't get her to go on camera. No. What was her concern? You know, I don't know how to answer that question, actually. I mean, because we did spend so much time on the phone, hours and hours and hours on the phone with this woman. Um and listening to her story and really trying to understand her defense of her son. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted her to come on camera and say that. I wanted her to come on camera and tell us what kind of man he was because she was painting him to be, you know, the good guy. Yeah. So we have a lot more to talk about. We're going to get into the possible motive for this murder, Seth's daughter, that incredible interview video, and a possible jailhouse confession. We'll be right back. A sense of safety is important to everyone, and that's why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe. It's an advanced security system that protects your entire home so you can rest easy. Simply Safe is completely customizable with advanced sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. You can have 24/7 professional home monitoring for less than $1 a day. So try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, you can return your system for a full refund. Plus, we're offering listeners 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Don't wait. Visit simplysafe.com/48hours. That's simplysafe.com/48hours. There's no safe like Simply Safe. If you're a fan of 48 Hours or true crime, looking to try on a case of your own, June's Journey is for you. A thrilling hidden object mystery game set against the backdrop of the 1920s. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective trying to unravel your sister's mysterious murder. As you dive into a world filled with twists and turns, trust no one. Every character could be hiding secrets. While you piece together the intricately woven plot, you'll collect crucial information in your photo album, turning suspicions into facts. And if you want help on the case, you can even join a detective club to collaborate or compete with fellow sleuths on hundreds of puzzles. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome back. So Seth's mom is, you know, characterizing, she's telling you that her son's a good guy, that he loved Amanda. But then on the flip side, you have a guy who just became a police officer. He's got a bit of a reputation for roughing up his wife. Other officers know about it. And we actually sort of hear it in a 911 call when an officer is heading over to the house um, after hearing about a disturbance. I want to play that 911 call. I'm going to share this with you, please. Thank you. She called me. She had barricaded herself in a back bedroom. It's my husband, and he's putting his hands on me. She ended up having to run next door. He locked me out of the house, and I'm just trying to get my things out of the house, please. She's at the neighbor's house right now. 
Another sheriff's dispatcher was alerted. And she said her husband is an officer with the Eatonton Police Department. That second dispatcher said he knew Seth Peralt and said he had a reputation. I ain't supposed to know this, but he's been out of work with his back, and apparently he's over there whipping up on her ass. Seth's arrested for um, domestic uh, assault. Even after that, after the arrest, Amanda refuses a stay-away order, and so Seth is able to come back. And she does. She's doesn't survive much longer after that. Right, right. Um, that call was her first call to the police ever. Right, and uh, just a few days before she was shot. Yeah. Why do you think she let Seth come back? He was totally in control, right? And and we've talked about this. She loved his daughter. Yeah. Right. So they had custody of of his daughter, and um, yeah. yeah. Like, as I'm remembering it now, she didn't have a job. She didn't have a car. Right. She had and nothing. I even feel like she didn't have a cell phone that she, she could use regularly. she might have at that point. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. There was, she went a long time without her own cell phone. Right. Yeah. Like, she really was restricted and had felt she had few options, but she did have her sisters. And her sisters felt like there was another reason why she would not insist on Seth being kept away from her. I want to play Alicia's sound. Because she was scared. She knew he was mad. She knew that it was public, that he had been arrested. He's a police officer. You know, I have to bring him home and make this right. Seth's potential motive. The suggestion from the sheriff, from the prosecutor, is that after he was arrested for domestic violence, Everything about his world was going, there's a risk of it all unraveling. Right. Um, it, it was already sort of barely hanging together. Right. This facade of suburban success and peace. Yes. Um, and with the removal of one piece, which would have been his job, everything else could have, could have fallen apart. Yeah, so I think he was panicking. Mm-hmm. He was going to lose his job and potentially lose custody of his daughter. And uh, he had Amanda write that note. And he wanted her to take it down to the sheriff's department. And I think he forced her to write the note because that's sort of what it looks like, right? right. And that's what the sheriff says and the DA. Um, the language is is not, con- you know, it's just bizarre. It's a bizarre letter. It's a really weird letter. I want to play some of what Sheriff Sills had to say that sort of yeah. stuck out to him. He said that she had written something that she intended to bring to me recanting what she had told the deputies, and he told me where it was. This handwritten letter was found in Amanda's nightstand. It reads in part, I, Amanda Perrault, would like to retract my statement. My husband never put his hands on me ever. I feel horrible for the humiliation I put my husband and my family through. I am willing to take any punishment I may deserve for what I have done. So the odd word is punishment. I mean, who writes that? Yeah. If, if you if you say that, you know, I was wrong, I was dishonest, it's never happened, then that's all you write. You don't say, punish me, please. I don't know. It was, yeah, you know, it was bizarre. To yeah. me, that's the one, the biggest piece of evidence that proves motive. Right. Yeah. And I think she might have refused to take it down to the sheriff's department and um, was planning on leaving him. Yeah. And if she left him, that was it, right? Yeah. The, there was no defense in the 
in the abuse, the the child would have been taken away. Right. And and for sure, for Sheriff Sills, because he's got a little bit of an intuition. It wasn't just the wording; it was the way it was written. You actually brought a yeah, copy of the letter here. here. I mean, when you look at this, I, not only is the penmanship perfect, and some people have perfect penmanship. I am not one of those people. It's like a paper written for like a school class. Yeah. The margins are perfect. Yeah. It just looks like somebody who had sort of written it over and over again until it was perfection. And those are the little things that when you have a lot of experience, um, when you've seen notes like this before, you know, like the sheriff has, it just it just stands out. All right. We'll talk a little bit about the trial now. But when you listen to his daughter's interview, oh, my gosh, because I listened to it again. Yeah. Um, and she's describing the fight that they had when officers were called. They were cussing at each other. Mrs. Amanda was cussing too, but she didn't touch Daddy at all. Daddy was like touching our nose like this, like, get out of my house right now. The jury was shown most of the interview. Um, she was on the floor like this, like, yeah, trying to get her stuff. Then all of a sudden, Daddy just started grabbing her arms, and Daddy just pushed her over the laundry table and then um, opened the door and pushed her out the door. While her father spent the night in jail, she said Amanda begged her not to tell anyone what happened or there could be deadly consequences. Amanda tells her that night, if your daddy loses custody of you, he's going to shoot me dead. Your daddy would come shoot me dead. Can you imagine? You know, he is throwing her out of the house and this poor little child is describing it in the way that she would have described a game that was being played in the schoolyard. You know, so-and-so went after so-and-so, and and then so-and-so went after so-and-so. Your heart is breaking for her because this is not normal. Right. And she, I don't know if she knows it. Right. And then there was sort of some other video that was shown in the court from Amanda's cell phone that kind of it's kind of the only glimpse that we have of what might have been going on behind the scenes. Right. Um, let's play some of that. I want to have a good weekend. You burn that up when you try to put that phone in my face. What phone in your face? Oh, right there. Oh, your, your videotape. Yeah, because you're being a and I'm going to show oh, you so tomorrow. You didn't, you didn't videotape all the you when you hit me and smacked Hit you? Yeah. You fucking choked me a Time. So I've heard, I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said Amanda could give as good as she could get, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know about that. I don't mm-hmm. think that was equal. But she was a fighter. She would fight back. Victims can also at times have the power sure, to you try to defend to them, the to try yeah. to fight back, to try and create boundaries. Right. Right. But um, at, but at times they are overpowered. And, and what we saw was a power dynamic here that even when she fought back, she was always in the weaker position. Right. A power struggle and she was always in the weaker position. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, what was your take on this jailhouse confession? I, I know that they kind of like included it, but I didn't. I didn't think they actually needed it. I didn't think they needed it either. And I and I'm not I'll never really be fully sure um why they brought it in. And when we asked the DA about it, he said, well, you know, it was just another piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of that confession was, according to him, Seth saying that his biggest concern was 
the clothing that they would see that he had changed his clothes right. and, and I, I didn't like, really understand that because there was no blood on that clothing anyway right so what's the big deal and I really thought the defense attorney who did an interview with us mm-hmm. um, I thought that his explanation was was so- pretty solid like they had been out that morning yeah he went home he changed it he took a shower changed his clothes and got into bed yeah. you know Let's talk about the defense attorney. Yeah, please. So 48 Hours tried and tried and tried to get someone to talk on Seth's behalf. His mother had at times promised to come. I she really had promised thought friends she was would going come. To, yeah. She had all this sort of stuff, right? So in the end, we got this defense attorney, uh, Justin jo- Kenny. Justin Kenny. Right. Uh, who I thought was great. He was terrific. What people need to know about Justin Kenny and the, and the defense in general is he was not – Seth's primary attorney. Right. He wasn't the lead attorney on the case. He wasn't the lead attorney. Can you sort of tell us, how, tell us how his defense evolved? So Seth initially had a very um, well-known, well-heeled defense attorney who they were paying a lot of money for. And he passed away like a month before trial. And then Justin Kenny comes in at the last minute and has like, you know, just a few weeks or a few days or a month or so to read into the case, yeah. which isn't really a lot. And and then he uh, and then he gets stuck doing closing arguments. Yeah. And the night before, he wrote the whole thing out himself, like really sort of last minute crunch time. So I really appreciated that he was willing to talk to us about the case. Um And I got to tell you, I mean, he really believes that Seth should not be behind bars. Yeah, he was very passionate. I thought he did a very good job given the evidence and what he had to work with. And uh, but he really does believe that Seth is innocent. Yeah. So kind of the most kind of challenging part of this story for me was speaking to Amanda's sisters. Yeah. And it was challenging because they were incredibly emotional. There were a lot of tears. And I just felt the weight of doing right by them. Yeah. Doing right by Amanda um, and making sure that they got their story out. We just want to create awareness around domestic abuse and for people to don't sit back and just let it happen, no matter what the the victim is telling you. They were glad that they had spoken for their sister, right? Yeah. Because that was what it was all about. Like someone has to be the voice of Amanda and tell us her side of the story and who she was and 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 what you know what what they saw in that relationship. I like to think that when when viewers watch our show, they either see themselves or families see their daughters or cousins or sisters in Amanda, and they see the red flags and they think, oh, are there any of those red flags in this relationship? And should I be a little more vocal about that? Fight for them, you know, help them, help them any way you can. There's so many things I wish I could go back now and do different. Wish I could go back and save her. <laughs> You're gonna save somebody with this. I hope so. 
Be sure to join us next Tuesday for another postmortem. And if you're liking the show, please rate and review 48 Hours on Apple Podcasts and follow 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the 48 Hours podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.